Turn, if you would, to the 10th chapter of the book of Mark. For some reason, people were surprised that we didn't have a new grandbaby this week, as if this just happens every week. I will make an observation for you. Uh, you know, right, you've always heard the statement, always be ready, because you never know when you might have an opportunity. In my American history class on Wednesday, uh, I gave them this survey, because we do this, you do the history lesson, and then there's a Bible lesson associated with it. I mean, it is a good Christian school. And the Bible lesson was about success. How does God judge success? And I gave them a little quiz thing that my dad used to give to people all the time. Basically, it's just 12 things, and you rank them in order of importance. These are things like world peace, friends, um, happiness, et cetera, et cetera. And on that list is salvation. So I hand it to the class. These are Christian high schoolers. And one of them says, what is salvation? And I explained it to her and moved on with the lesson. You never know who you might run into and in what context. Last week, we ended with a discussion about divorce. And I had at least two people come up to me afterwards and say they're looking forward to this week's lesson where we can dive into it deeper. And I told them, no way. <laughs> we have done those verses. We're done. We began the discussion of divorce with the fact that the Pharisees had come to Jesus to ask him because they knew it was a controversial subject. They knew that that is what got, had got John the Baptist in trouble with Herod, ultimately leading to John's being beheaded. So they knew it was a difficult subject, and so today it is still a difficult subject. And we tried to tie it back, like Jesus did, to the original purpose and meaning of marriage. Because you can't understand the problem of divorce unless you understand the purpose of marriage to begin with. That was last week's lesson. Verse 13, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. So Jesus is sitting there, and these people are bringing their children to Jesus so that he would bless them. And the disciples looked at him and they said, go away, you're just bothering the master. Which I think is an odd thing for them to do, but they were trying to be protective. And the children were just an interference to them. And when Jesus saw them, he was indignant. Jesus was ticked off and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I have told you before that on Saturday nights, I go walking around the park to teach my lesson, okay? I finish up my study and I go walk around the park. Well, last night I did it earlier 
Now, the fact that it gets dark earlier helps, so that's not a problem. So I did it earlier, and I'm walking around the park, and there's a couple walking with a child, okay? They, on either side, walking with the child, and the father is talking to the child as I walk up behind them. They are obviously walking slower than I am. And as I'm walking up, the father tells the child, yes, you are in the kingdom of God. And I said, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. And he finished the verse. And then I did the next verse. And he, he, the father, and he said, hallelujah. And I kept on walking. That has nothing to do with the lesson. I just thought it was interesting. They are. Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. For to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What does it mean to enter the kingdom like a child? And to understand this, we have to understand a distinction between two words. One of them is being childish, and one of them is being childlike. I uh, googled on these words, and in the very secular world, it is interesting the comments that they have. One of the articles was seven childlike traits we should recapture to live a happy life. Curiosity, excitement, faith, trust, uh, wonder, short memory, <laughs> persistence. The second article was 10 Signs of Emotional Childishness. Would you all like to speculate what's on that list? Emotional escalations, blaming, lies, name-calling. Impulsivity, need to be the center of attention, bullying, budding narcissism, immature defenses and no observing ego. That means that I do not see the fact that you are another human being too with needs and that I'm supposed to... Anyway, you see the difference, right? Childishness is something we are to put aside. Jesus is telling us that we need to enter the kingdom as a child. So... As we look at lists of what it means to be childlike, I would like to just add one to that. And that is the idea of dependency. I watched our two-year-old and 10-month-old on Thursday. Let me tell you something, okay? If you took this two-year-old, who's a great kid, if you take this two-year-old and you plopped him in the middle of the street and left him, his odds of survival are not very good. The only thing he can fall back on is that he's really cute, and somebody's liable to stop and help him. But he is totally dependent upon adults to take care of him, to provide him his food. Now, he knows how to open the pantry, and he knows how to get the stuff out of the bottom of the pantry, but he can't open it. A child is dependent upon someone else for his needs to be met. 
One of the things that hinders us when we approach God is this idea that somehow God is fortunate to have me. Somehow this idea that I am contributing at least some, if not most, of what it takes for me to be saved. Somehow we begin to believe that we are not dependent upon God for our everyday life. And when we refuse to accept our dependence upon God, I will tell you, we will not enter the kingdom of God. We're just not going to make it. To the extent that we believe we can do it ourselves, to the extent that we as adults think we can just push our way, force our way, do whatever it takes, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, unless you enter like a child, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. One of those bizarre speculations. What do you think it would be like as a child to grow up having been blessed by Jesus himself? I have no idea. It's just an interesting thought. But while you're thinking about dependence, let's keep reading. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is every evangelist dream. Okay? I go out to try to convince somebody they need to kind of sort of listen to the gospel. And here is a guy coming to Jesus and saying, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, if you are, if you have any semblance of evangelistic interest, this guy is your guy. This guy is showing up and he wants to know the answer. And besides all that, he's rich. Perfect for the church, right? All you've got to do, Jesus, is finish the sale, give him the pitch, bring him in, life is good. Jesus, don't muff it. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let's just stop right there. The, te the man being very interested saluted Jesus by saying good teacher. And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you use that word good? There is no one good except God. I might add, I quote this verse all the time in a horrible context. I ask my children, how are you doing? Good? There's no one good but God. And they shrug their shoulders and go, ah. Oh. All the time this happens. 
How was dinner? It was good. Nope, there's no one good but God. Is Jesus saying that he isn't God? No. All he's saying is the source of all goodness is God. And by the way, I'm sitting right here. But he's pointing out to this rich young man that the standard of goodness is not some earthly standard, but rather God himself. He is the standard of what is good and evil in this world. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not steal, no, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he rattles off, depending on how you count, five or six of the Ten Commandments. It's interesting, the do not defraud is not actually one of the Ten Commandments. Most people think, well, it's a connection of the do not steal and do not bear false witness, because that's what you're doing when you're defrauding somebody. So we'll cut Jesus a little slack. He gives the man a list of commandments and says, this is what you need to do. Now, somebody comes up to you, and you are trying to be a good evangelist. And they say, what must I do to be saved? Do you ever start rattling off the Ten Commandments to them? This guy is going to fail evangelism explosion. This guy is asking the wrong questions. And he, the man, said to him, Jesus, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, is this arrogance on the part of this young man to believe that he had kept them? Uh, I'm going to cut him a little slack. I think he never murdered anybody in his life. I'm thinking he never stole anything. I'm thinking he was a very good, obedient son to his father and mother. Now, if we tack on Jesus' discussion about obeying the law from our heart we begin to see that anger is correlated to murder and lust is correlated to adultery and we begin to go, oh shoot, I've never done it. But this guy had been following these rules. He was born and raised and followed them and could with a clean conscience say, I have never killed, I have never stolen, I have never committed adultery and I have honored my parents and I don't defraud people. Let's cut him some slack. Then Jesus speaks, and he said to them, no, 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 and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Let's just stop right there. Jesus is about to say something that is going to break this man's heart. But there is not a shred of malice in Jesus' words. An observation about evangelism. The motivation for evangelism is love. 
If you're doing it just to prove a point, if you're doing it just to win an argument, if you're doing it just because, well, the teacher told you you should do it, you're not doing it the way Jesus did it. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And to tell you the truth, my first thought was this word for love here is going to be filio, which is the brotherly love that we have one for another. But it's not. This is agape love. This is love that seeks the good of the other at all times. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. One thing, one thing is standing between you and God, and that is your love of your stuff, the love of your possessions. Your wealth has convinced you that you are not dependent upon God. You are not ready to enter the kingdom as a child. Is this verse telling us in this room today that we are supposed to sell all of our possessions, give to the poor, come and follow Jesus? Let's have a show of hands. No, let's not have a show of hands. Because that would get us in trouble. There are commands in the Bible that are obviously directed to one person and one person alone. There are commands in the Bible that are directed to groups of people, and we may or may not be in that group. And then there are commands in the Bible that are obviously directed to us as a, well, all of humanity. We know that the come and follow me is a commandment to all of us as believers. There is no such thing as a follower of Christ who doesn't follow Christ. I mean, it's just a bizarre sentence to begin with. But nowhere in the Bible does it command us, instruct us to sell everything that we have and give all of it to the poor. Now, just as an observation, this verse doesn't say sell everything and give all of it. It says sell your stuff and give to the poor. What he's telling him is to lose this tight grip and connection that you have on your wealth. Be willing to give it away because Jesus knew that this was the one thing in this guy's life. Backing up just again a moment. We've been talking about evangelism. 
And you and I look at this and go, Jesus did a lousy job of evangelism. I mean, let's just face it. Let's get him into the church. We'll work on him. He'll hear the gospel. He might respond, and he'll give us a good tithe while he's doing it. Now, I do not recommend this method of evangelism that Jesus is using right here. Why? Because there's one critical aspect. Jesus knows this man's heart. I can guess what your one thing is. Jesus doesn't guess. Jesus knows. So when we share the gospel with someone, we need to remember who is doing what to whom. Do you remember last week's sermon? What was it about? The Holy Spirit convicting the world of sin. We are instructed to share the gospel with others. We can bring them into our church. We can welcome them into our community. We can let them sing in the choir. We can let them do all kinds of things. But unless the Holy Spirit convicts them of the one thing, they will not enter the kingdom of God. That is both a curse and it's a blessing. The blessing is it's not our job to save people. That's Jesus and the Holy Spirit. We do have an obligation to share the gospel. What is the motivation of that obligation? Love. We, through love, like Jesus, share the gospel, and the Spirit uses our words, and trust me, I don't know why God chose to work that way. Okay? Why God chose to use us as sinful human beings as the proclaimers of the gospel of a perfect God is kind of bizarre to me, but that's what he did. We, out of love, share the gospel with the unbeliever. The Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever and the person responds or they walk away. Jesus loved this guy, but he wasn't going to let him think that he was right with God when he wasn't really right with God. He told them, told him what he needed to hear. That there is one thing standing between you and God, and that is your wealth. Now, since we're on this topic, we have to ask the question. To what extent does our wealth, our stuff, stand between us and God? There's that Proverbs, you know, that I quote all the time. God grant me two things, make me neither rich nor poor. If I'm rich, I'll think I don't need you. If I'm poor, I will steal and defame your name. What's the rich side of that? The thinking that I can do it on my own. 
Unless you become like a child, recognizing your dependence upon God, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This rich young man was trusting in his wealth. And he was doing good stuff. He was a good guy. You would have liked him. You would have invited him over for Thanksgiving. Don't serve the ham, serve the turkey. (laughs) You would have liked him. He would have been a great addition to your family, to your church. So if God is not necessarily instructing you to sell everything you have and give to the poor. What that means is that if that's not our one thing, what is our one thing? What is that thing that is standing between you and dependence upon God? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Poor in spirit means I know I can't do it myself. I don't know if it's because you're wealthy, you think you can do it all, or because you're talented, or because of this, or because of that. If there is one thing that is standing between you and God, the Holy Spirit, not me, is going to tell you what that is. But we do, collectively, live in a wealthy society. I know you don't believe that. I mean, we have trouble making the bills, right? And doing this and doing that. We live in a very wealthy society. Throughout all of human history, we, we, the people in this room, have more wealth than kings would have dreamed of. I have more books on my bookshelf than the greatest scholar in the world had 200 years ago. We're rich. And sometimes we do let that wealth convince us that we can make it on our own. (sighs) Disheartened by his saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Finish off our little talk about evangelism. You and I probably have this idea that when Billy Graham talked to somebody one-on-one, that person didn't stand a chance. They were going to be saved. I've always talked about Paul. Paul is in uh, Rome. He is a captive. He is chained to a Praetorian guard. Poor Praetorian guard. (laughs) He's toast. Paul's going to say, and we know that he did save some. But here is Jesus Christ. God himself. And the guy walked away. So remember the parable of the four soils. Not everybody is going to respond. They don't even respond to Jesus. You just accept that as part of life. 
And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It's like Jesus is sorrowful that the guy left and he turned to his disciples shaking his head and said, it is really hard for somebody who has great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. Why were they amazed? I mean, well, it's God talking, so I guess you can be amazed. Believe it or not, I know you don't do this, okay? But believe it or not, we do have this tendency to look up to people who have accumulated wealth. You know, they're kind of the elite of society. They're kind of important people. They've got it all together. Life is good for them. They're going to get whatever they want. And when we see that Jesus is saying, no, that wealth itself that they have accumulated makes it more difficult, not less difficult, to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, to remind ourselves, there are, have been, and always will be very wealthy people who are very strong members of the kingdom of God. Abraham was an exceptionally rich guy. I always liked the story of R.G. Letourneau. You know, familiar with him? Letourneau University, somewhere out that direction. He was in the construction business. He built stuff. Very, very successful. And at the end of the year, he paid all of his bills, gave himself a salary. He wasn't starving. But then he gave away all the rest of his money. What else was he going to do with it? He was a Christian in the kingdom with wealth. But Jesus is saying, that's hard. That is hard. And the disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said to them again, children. Now, let's just start right there. Okay? This is Jesus not talking about children, but referring to them as children. Children how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is difficult for everybody to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because we all have that one thing that stands between us and God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, how many of you, I want to see a show of hands, how many of you can thread a needle? <laughs> I've done it before. And I sit there for minutes trying to get this thing through. My wife just sits there and goes, Shook! and there it goes. That's the thin thread through a needle. Now, how many of you have ever seen a camel up close and personal? Yeah, just out of curiosity, how many of you have ridden a camel? Okay, my wife has ridden a camel. I've never ridden a camel. I've walked beside a camel while my children, but I've never ridden a camel. In case you didn't notice, camels are big. 
they probably would have been about the largest animal that Jesus and his immediate audience would have been aware of. I mean, they knew about elephants. They knew about all that stuff. But in their everyday life, they would have run into camels. So I'm going to take that needle with the eye of the needle, and I am going to take this camel, and I am going to squish it into that hole. It is interesting, just talking about this illustration, um, there are those who have said that, you know, this is referring to a gate and all of that stuff, and uh, the camels had to get down on their knees and crawl into the... I've heard this illustration before. The illustration actually goes back to about the 15th century, but there is actually no evidence that such a gate ever existed. But the saying, going through the eye of a needle, was a very common saying. If you look in Jewish literature outside the Bible, if you look in the Quran, it mentions the difficulty of getting a camel through the eye of a needle. Let me let you in on a secret. It's not difficult. It's impossible. Okay? Not to gross anybody out, but I'm convinced even if you put the camel in little pieces into the blender, it's still not going to make it through the eye of the needle. And guess what? It is hard for the wealthy, those who are dependent or trusting themselves to their wealth, it is difficult for them to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, let's just back that up. It is difficult for you to enter the kingdom of heaven. We could put you in the blender and we're still not gonna get you through the eye of that needle. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I'm going to walk up to somebody and I'm going to share the gospel with them. I haven't done this very often, but I have done it before. And I have been talking with people and answering questions and going back and forth. I'm actually much better at the answering the questions part than actually sharing the gospel. And in my mind, I think this person is so lost. You know what? It is impossible for them to enter the kingdom of God. I don't care how good you are how rich you are, how talented you are, how kind you are, how much you love your mother and father or your dog or your cat. I don't care. None of that is going to get you into the kingdom of God. It is impossible for you to work your way into the kingdom. But wait a minute. Doesn't that just mean that God's standard is too high? Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God. 
right. And that's the standard of salvation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who have acknowledged their total inability to enter the kingdom of God. What is the first prerequisite to enter the kingdom of God? Knowing you can't enter the kingdom of God. With man it is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. That is a great source of encouragement to us. If you or I or the rich young ruler or your neighbor or your family member or somebody else is going to enter the kingdom of God, it's because God convicted them and they responded. Now, the rich young ruler did not respond. He was still trying to do it himself. Jesus Christ, several, several, several chapters from now, is going to die on a cross in order to make possible that which to us is utterly impossible. That is to allow us to enter the kingdom of God. When we become like the child and say, I can't do this, God says, you're right. Come on in. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for making possible what for us is impossible. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.